There's no question about the fact that the New Testament plainly teaches that God expects his children to grow spiritually. When you look at a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2, one with which I'm sure we are familiar, Peter writes in verse 1, Therefore laying aside all malice, all guile, hypocrisy, envy, and all evil speaking as newborn babes, desire the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Second Peter 3.18, Peter admonishes, But grow in the grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Hebrews writer chastised Christians in his day for their lack of growth when he wrote at Hebrews 5, verse 12, beginning, For though by the time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the principles, first principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are of full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. You know, every purpose that God has for our lives is thwarted to the extent that growth is hindered. We will never achieve what God would have us achieve in our lives as those who claim to follow Him if our growth is hindered. And all growth, all growth is accompanied by struggle. All growth is accompanied by our effort. We're beginning a new year, and certainly it's good at any time, but perhaps especially at this time, for all to take stock, to examine ourselves, the maximum degree of efficiency can never be attained while hindrances are allowed to remain in our lives. And one area of hindrance to growth as a Christian is attitude. And as we begin a new year, I'd like for us to think about that, remind ourselves of just how important attitude is in living the Christian life. Attitude is important in so many aspects of our lives, obviously. Attitude is our way of thinking, it's our way of acting or feeling in regard to things or persons or, or in regard to our responsibilities. Philippians 2, 5, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And Paul in Romans 8 and verse 6 says, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. What a promise. What a promise that is, that if, if we are spiritually minded, there will be life, true life, spiritual life, and peace. On the other hand, carnal mindedness brings about death. Man's attitude is his set of sail, if you will. You know, both the hummingbird and the vulture fly over our nation's deserts, and all the vultures see is rotting meat because that's what they're looking for. They're looking for rotted meat. They thrive on that diet. 
But the hummingbird, on the other hand, ignores that smelly flesh of dead animals, and instead he looks for the colorful blossoms of desert plants. The vulture lives on what was, lives on the past. The vulture fills himself with what is dead and gone. Hummingbirds, on the other hand, live on what is. They seek new life. They fill themselves with freshness and life. Each of those birds finds what he's looking for. And we all do. And so it's important to know what we are looking for and the attitude that we're to have. Think with me for a few minutes this morning about attitudes that are so crucial as we begin a new year in various areas and toward various entities. First of all, the attitude toward God and His Word. What is the attitude that we have toward God? Do we view God as a dictatorial tyrant, or do we see Him as a loving Father? makes a world of difference in how we will respond, doesn't it? If we think God is constantly looking to see if He can find wrong in our lives and just waiting to pounce upon us, as it were, that's not the attitude that we should have. On the other hand, to believe that God is just so loving and so benevolent that He really does not care what we do as long as we call upon Him every now and then or do what we want to do and think that'll be pleasing to Him, that indeed He'll be fine with that. No. Viewing God as a loving Father will motivate us to the type of action that produces spiritual growth. He do, who does not love does not know God, John reminds us in 1 John 4, 8, for God is love. God is love. Come, let us all unite to sing. God is love. And certainly, that is true. Not only does John affirm that in 1 John 4 and verse 8, but again, over at verse 16 in that same chapter, and we have known and believed the love that God has for us. God is love. And he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. Oh, behold what manner of love. First John 3, 1. The Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God. Therefore, the world does not know us because it did not know him. The world does not know us because of God's love for us and our reciprocal love for Him. Therefore, the reciprocal love for Him does not mean that we can do anything we want to or live any way we should because the world does not know us because of our love for Him. Therefore, we're not like the world. That tells us that, yes, while God is love, the kind of love that God has is our loving Father and the love we're to show in return is a love that separates us from worldly activities and causes us to obey that loving Father, motivated by that love that He had for us. Christianity has its roots in the love of God. And our response to that love is so basic, so fundamental. If you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15. Keep my commandments. Do we have a healthy appetite as we begin this new year? for the bread of life, or are we on a spiritual diet, if you will? Are we dieting when it comes to the Word of God, or are we 
maintaining a healthy appetite for the bread of life. It's impossible to be strong spiritually without spiritual food. We've already alluded to that. Peter has already reminded us of it in 1 Peter 2, 1 and 2. The Hebrews writer has already reminded us of it in Hebrews 5, 12 through 14. That there is a maturation process that can only be accomplished by feeding regularly and fully upon the word of God. It's the only way to be protected from falling. It's all we have and it's all we need. It is absolutely sufficient to keep us from falling. Listen to what Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 4 at verse 14. That we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. Verse 15, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into him who is the head, Christ. He goes on from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. That's what we want to achieve here at White Oak in this coming year and in every year thereafter for that matter. In our own individual lives, we need to understand just how important it is to have that healthy appetite for the bread of life, that it is the only way to keep us from falling, that it's the only basis for our faith to be strengthened that the Word of God is a mirror to our soul to reveal spiritual deficiencies and allow us to be, as our brother Joe has already prayed in his very poignant prayer, better tomorrow than we were yesterday. Remember what Paul said to those Ephesian elders in that poignant parting exchange that he had with them at Miletus. Now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Commend you to God and to the word of his grace. How much time do we spend in fervent study? How much time in 2016 will we spend in fervent study and meditation of the word of God? How much will we grow, each one of us, in the year 2016. Oh yes, our attitudes toward God and His Word. Those attitudes are vitally important. But what about our attitude toward our fellow man? That can help us or it can certainly hinder our growth. Are we carrying any ill will over into 2016 from 2015? Any malice, etc.? Those things that can and will eat like a cancer? Hopefully not. Love and concern build up. Ill will and malice eat like a cancer. What makes us angry? Do we store up wrath and seek to retaliate? Indeed, the scripture has a great deal to say about not doing that. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26, Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your wrath, nor give place to the devil. 
Let all bitterness over at verse 31 of that same chapter, wrath, anger, clamor, and evil speaking be put away from you with all malice and be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another just as God in Christ also forgave you. You see, one who's not right with others cannot be right with God. And so we need to make sure that we are right with others. You remember what the Lord said about this in the great Sermon on the Mount? The words recorded in Matthew chapter 5 of that great treatise at verses 23 and 24. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother. And then come and offer your gift. The Bible has much to say about making sure that we are as right with others as others will allow us to be. We have to make sure we do our part. Colossians 3.8, another emphasis upon this very thing. But now you must also put off all these, what are they, Paul? Anger, wrath, malice, blasphemy, filthy language out of your mouth. Do not lie to one another since you have put off the old man with his deeds. Envy and jealousy are attitudes that will stunt our growth. The writer of Proverbs in Proverbs 14.30 says, A sound heart is life to the body but envy is rottenness to the bones. A sound heart is life to the body, but envy is rottenness, rottenness to the bones. Envy, discontent at the excellence or good fortune of another. It has its root in selfishness, and it's clearly condemned. In 1 Corinthians 13, 4, in that great love chapter, love does not what? Envy. Jealousy, envy, these things have no place in the lives of those who are manifesting the proper attitude toward their fellow man. Rather, it should be what? Love and concern for others as brothers and sisters in Christ. Listen to Paul in Romans 12, 9 through 12. Let love be without hypocrisy, abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love in honor giving preference to one another. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord, rejoicing in hope, patient in tribulation, continuing steadfastly in prayer, distributing to the needs of the saints, given to hospitality. Through verse 13. And then you look at the same writer's admonition to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning at verse 20. But now indeed there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor, and our unpresentable parts have greater modesty 
but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. Says a great deal, those two passages, about the attitude that we're to have toward our fellow man and especially toward our brothers and our sisters in Christ. But finally, what about our attitude toward ourselves? What about the attitude toward self? That can affect our growth. Oh, very much so. Our growth in spiritual matters can be and will be greatly affected by how I view myself and how you view yourself. For example, whether one is humble or proud will surely influence his growth. You know, humility is not one of those optional virtues. Humility is not something that we can either take or leave and still be pleasing to God. Humility is a basic attitude for anyone who would please God and experience growth. James says, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord, James 4 and verse 10. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. How many passages could be cited on this same subject? Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and what? And he will lift you up. See what Peter writes about it in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 5 and 6. Likewise, you younger people, submit yourselves to your elders. Yes, all of you be submissive to one another. And be what? Clothed with humility. I love that expression. Because it says just how permeating the quality of humility must be. As I mentioned before, it's not a ring, according to Peter, that we wear on our finger. It's a robe that covers the body. It permeates every aspect of our lives. Humility. Be clothed with humility. Why, Peter? For God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. I don't want to be resisted by God, do you? I know who will come out on top in that confrontation. It'll always be God. When I resist God, He always wins. Therefore, if we humble ourselves genuinely, He gives grace. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time. Oh, yes, humility is not optional. It's a basic attitude for anyone who wants to please God and who wants to experience spiritual growth. What are some of the traits of humility which produce growth? Well, humility makes us teachable, doesn't it? If we're humble, we're going to be teachable. Humility will make us a learner all of our lives. We need to be learners all of our lives. All of our lives. Until we draw our last breath, we are still learning when it comes to those things that are most important for us to learn. Humility is also self-abandonment. When one is genuinely humble, he abandons self. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Back to Philippians 2 and verse 5. 
And then Paul goes on to tell us what kind of mind that was. In that immediate context, it was a mind of self-abandonment. That's what it was. It was a mind of self-abandonment who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but what? Abandoned self. Made himself of no reputation. The American standard there says emptied himself. So let this mind be in you, which was also in him. What did he do? He emptied himself, gave up equality with God so that you and I could ultimately be with God for all eternity. Humility is self-abandonment. Also, humility will risk humiliation. Humility risks humiliation. In John 13, what did Jesus do? He washed the disciples' feet. And Peter was frankly taken aback by that. Astounded by it, shocked by it, didn't even want it to happen. And the Lord reminded him, unless I do this, you'll have no part with me. And then he said, what? Not only my feet, but my whole body. Because I want to be with you, Lord. But humility risks humiliation. It humbles itself. Humility is service. It's willing to spend and to be spent for others. And when we have that attitude individually and thus collectively then spiritual growth will occur and numerical growth generally will follow. So do we seek to serve or are we more concerned about being served? What did the Lord say further about it in Matthew chapter 20, verses 27 and 28? He said, And whoever... Desires to be first among you, let him be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. Think soberly as you begin this new year. Think very soberly about the talents God has given you. And ask, are you using and developing them? Self-righteousness is a great barrier to growth and blessings. And there's no better example of that than the Pharisee in Luke 18 who went to the temple to tell God how good he was, not how good God was, how good the Pharisee was, and to remind God of just how good he was. The point is, if one feels he has arrived, as the expression goes, and no need to do more, he will not grow. But brethren... Let us say with Paul, I do not count myself to have apprehended, to have arrived. But this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to the things which are ahead, I press toward the mark for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Press on to higher ground, as we often sing. But you know, a growing life needs both a pattern and an objective. We're going to talk more about goals before this year is, uh, is uh, very old. But we need, in order to grow, a pattern and an objective. And the highest and most satisfying purpose which could control any life would be to what? Grow into the likeness of Christ. Grow 
into the likeness of Christ. He's our pattern, and he is our objective. He is both. Ephesians chapter 4, again. Till we all come to the unity of the faith, we are there now. Not when Paul wrote these words, but we're there now. And the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. We have that which Paul was referring to. The all-sufficient, complete, all-powerful Word of God. So, no excuse for being children tossed to and fro, carried about with every wind of doctrine by the trickery of men, by the cunningness, cunning craftiness by which they lie in wait to deceive. No we have that which is both our pattern and our objective revealed to us in the Word about the Christ. We grow more like Christ as we see through His eyes, walk in His footsteps, live in His presence, serve in His name. And His Word makes all of that achievable for us. Think of your attitude as your set of sail. How we think, how we feel, how we act can continually be improved. And let's determine to do just that in this year and to have truly the mind of Christ. There was a chaplain who was speaking to a soldier on a cot in a hospital And he said to that soldier, soldier, you've lost an arm in the great cause. The soldier responded, no, and smiled. I didn't lose it. I gave it. In that same way, Jesus did not lose his life. He gave it. He gave it purposely. And in return, we're to give our lives for him who first loved us. Have you done that? Have you obeyed the gospel of Christ, motivated hopefully by an attitude of love and appreciation, deepest gratitude for the one who first loved you and gave himself for you and for me? Respond by a belief in him that leads you to repent of your sins and to confess him as the Christ and then to be buried with him in baptism for the remission of sins. If you've done that, but you know that you have not continued to live for him as you should and as he deserves and demands, then we plead with you to come home as a wayward child and be restored to your first love if you've sinned in a public way. But privately, at least, for those who need no public response, let us determine that as we begin another calendar year and are blessed to do so, that we do so with attitudes that truly are reflective of the pattern and the objective that has been so clearly given to us in the Word, and that is the Christ himself. As we stand to sing, will you come?